0: Hey everyone, welcome to the 35th episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Today's guest is Thomas Johansson. Thomas won the 2002 Australian Open and reached a career high ranking of seventh on the ATP Tour. He won a silver medal in doubles at the 2008 Olympic Games and has gone on to coach Maria Sakkari, David Goffin, and Sarana Kirstia. On today's episode, we discuss why hard work beats talent, his mindset before winning the Australian Open and why it's important to keep it simple. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Thomas, welcome to the pod. Thank you very much. Great to have you here. Uh, we all know you know you from the 2002 Australian Open, you were one of the best Swedish players of all time. Uh, you won an Olympic silver medal, I believe, in doubles. Uh, so so many amazing accomplishments and we know where you ended up. But could you kind of tell us kind of where you got your start in tennis, when you started to take it seriously, and kind of what that process was like for you?
1: Yeah, I started playing tennis when I was wearing diapers. To be, I'm, I'm, I'm deadly honest now. Uh, I've seen pictures. The reason why I started is I think my, my dad and my grandfather played once or twice a week. And in Sweden, you have, let's say, a tennis league that it's definitely not professional, but it's on a club level, I would say. So uh, they played some singles, they played some doubles. And then sometimes I was lucky to, to go with them and, and have a look when they played. Then sometimes, um, you know, during their sessions, I could go in and I could hit a few balls here and there. And then uh, I think when I was four years old, I started in the tennis school in my hometown. And the the, the, the main coach saw me hit a few balls, uh, you know, with a softball. And uh, uh, my dad, he actually... Uh, like chopped a a racket so the racket was very very short and very light so that that was my first racket Um, so I started to play in my home club and and then when I was I would say 9, 10, 11 that was a time when I started to uh, you know win the Swedish championships and and, um, did really well uh, in Sweden and then of course you get picked for the national team and then the whole journey started there so um tennis has been my biggest passion in life i mean uh uh, when i stopped playing tennis i said i will never ever work with something in tennis anymore and i think it took a few months and then i changed my mind so um no tennis is is in my dna and this is what i what i know best and it's a beautiful sport i mean i've been so fortunate to see uh, different countries Um, i have met so many uh, amazing people around the world so um I can tell you it's the the best job in the world to be a professional tennis player.
0: So you mentioned kind of being selected for the Swedish national team kind of around that 10, 11, 12 age. And a lot of federations or a lot of countries I know when I was growing up, they had a certain style of play. You know, if I drew an Australian player in an ITF, I kind of go, I I know he might come in a little bit more. He might have an all-court game. Is there a Swedish style of play that you were kind of taught early on?
1: Yes, my, my idol growing up uh, was Mats Wilander. I was very fortunate to meet Mats when he played Davis Cup very close to my hometown in Sweden. One year, I think I was nine or ten years old, and I, my dad took a picture. I took his autograph, and I had that picture over my bed for my whole childhood because he was uh, he was my favorite player. I always wanted to play like him. Uh, and I also liked his uh, you know, his attitude outside the court. So every time he played the big matches like quarterfinal, semifinal, final in, in the slams, I was always there to, to watch on TV. And I think my, my dad was, um, he set the alarm when he played Lendl. I don't remember which year he was in US Open final. And it was such a good match. But I, I wanted to play like Mats. And he was, I mean, baseline player and not missing too much. But then Stefan Edberg came as well. And Stefan also became, you know, an idol for me. And, and I tried, I think I tried to find a, a game style, something in between. Because uh, Mats, as he got older, he got more aggressive. In the beginning, he was very, I would say, I mean, of course, a solid baseliner, but quite defensive. Then when he got older, he got more offensive. So, I mean, he he was attacking a lot more. He was more aggressive when he played. Um, so I try to, I would say, find a, a mix of Stefan and, and Mats in my game.
0: You know, players kind of mature at different ages. So you sound like you obviously from the beginning had a lot of talent, a lot of promise, and you were one of the best ITF junior players. And then clearly you went on to be one of the best pro players. But that's not the case for everybody. Sometimes people opt, no. Sometimes people start <laughs> off great and then they fizzle and you wonder what happened to them. And sometimes... Someone's a pro and you didn't know about them until they were 21, 22. So what was it about your game or your training process that allowed you to kind of have that sustained success for your whole career?
1: I think that I tried to surround myself with the right people. And, and this is very important uh, coming up because like you said, when I was 9, 10, 11, I was, I would say, probably best in Europe and, and one of the best in, in the world in my age and so everybody was pointing at me uh, and Thomas Enquist and Magnus Norman because Thomas Enquist is one year older and so he's born 1974 and 1975 and then you have Magnus Norman that is 1976 so and we all three managed to make the top 10 and we all three made uh, a final in the slam so i mean the federation and and all the people in Sweden they were pointing at us that we were going to be you know the next ones coming up in Thomas' case, it went very quick when he went from junior to the professional level. It went very, very quick. Uh, for me and Magnus, it took, uh, you know, a little bit longer time to break through. And I think we, we are all different players. If you look at Thomas, his, Thomas was always, he was tall, he was strong, he was hitting hard. It might sound cocky, but I was maybe, you know, my strength was my talent. Uh, but at the same time, I was I was very lazy. I was very lazy. Uh, Magnus was, um, I would say, like a Terminator. You know, he was such a hard-working player. So being in the middle of those two, I also, you know, learned a lot because they had things that I didn't have. And it might sound strange, but you see many players, not only in tennis, uh, that has a lot of talent, but most of them are quite lazy as well because everything comes easy to them so you have to luckily i i uh, you know i had one of my first professional coaches when i was like 18 19 and he said that i don't care how talented you are you have to start working hard and for me today hard work beats talent every every day of the week so um i was very lucky to have very good coaches and people around me that, of course, they saw that I was talented, but they uh, they also woke up something in me that was missing. And that helped me a lot.
0: Did you find it difficult, you know, like you said, you were always great, but maybe an Enqvist kind of shot shot up a little faster than you. Was it difficult for you to keep an eye on the present? Obviously, your results that week always matter to any tennis player, no matter what you say but then you have a goal to be a top 10 player and be a Grand Slam champion. Was it hard for you to balance keeping your level up in the moment, but also kind of building for the future and the player that you ultimately wanted to be?
1: Yes. Uh, my, my my big goal in my tennis career was was to be top 10. First, of course, to be a professional tennis player. That was my first goal. And then, of course, you, you aimed for top 100, and then you aimed for top 50, and then, of course, you aimed for the top 10. But... It's it's very very tough to to get to that level because you have to be so consistent. Uh, you have a, you need such a consistency for the whole year. You cannot just only make one or two results. You have to make uh, you know the whole year quite solid. But I mean, to, like I said, Thomas went up very quick, and he will. Be, but he was also so good. He was so good. He was so strong. He was hitting the ball so hard, moving well. So growing up. When I played junior events, I always, you know, I won my age group. But then when I played one each group above, then I always faced Thomas in the final. And I always lost to him. Always lost to him. And then Magnus Norman was the same. He won everything in his age. And then when he played one year above, uh, he lost to me in the finals all the time. So it's it's a very fun history among us three that... um, not so many people are talking about but we were we were a special group because we all like you said we made top 10 and we made a grand slam final and and i managed to win one
0: M- making the top 10 is is probably a dream for for most players especially ones that have pro ambitions besides the consistency that you just mentioned is there another aspect of that that you found what, what was the most difficult aspect of trying to achieve that goal to get into the top 10
1: for me, it was more um, the physical aspect because, like I said, I I don't want to sound cocky, but it came quite easy to me. You know, playing tennis was not that difficult. But for me, it was very difficult to put on my jogging shoes and, and go out and, and, and run in the, in the forest or, or, you know, go to the gym or, you know, making squats in the gym or something like that. For me, that was... A big hurdle that I had to you know uh, I had to face so for me it was not so much about the tennis it was more about the physical aspect of the game and at the moment I think that is the biggest difference if you compare you know when I was at my peak and and then you look at the tennis today first of all they all know how to train how to eat how to sleep how to recover you know when when I grew up Uh, If I went out running in the forest and after my run, I, you know, I felt, I was so tired and I felt so bad. So I almost threw up. It was a good day in the office. Now it's completely different. They, they, uh, of course, they push themselves to the limit, but it's a, we know so much more now than we did uh, at that time. And that is one of the reasons also why we have, the players have a longer career at the moment. Uh, because we had to stop around, you know, thirty. Uh, I mean, Magnus stopped when he was twenty-six, I think. But physical aspect of the game for me was a little bit of the pain in the butt because they had to drag me out in the, you know, in the forest to run uh, to do the, all this physical work, and I thought it was so boring. Uh, but at the same time, the reason why I thought it was so boring was also because I was so bad at it. Uh, And then as I got stronger, I started to enjoy it more. And then when I got very strong, for me, it was just another day in the office. So that was a part of my tennis that really needed a wake-up call. Because I could easily hit with any guy. It doesn't matter if he was, uh, you know, when I was 16, 17, I could easily hit with a guy that was top 10. No problem. But then when we started to make drills, I, I died after you know, 30 minutes while the guy could go on for four hours. So that was also a wake up call for me to see how strong they were, these guys on the professional level.
0: Everyone's got their own strength and weakness. I've heard people talk about uh, the ability to work hard as a talent in itself. Right. And I think most people, most people listening would go, well, I want your talent. I I want to be able to hit the ball. I want that to come easy and I'll, I'll figure out the hard work or whatever later. But that everyone's got their own skill that they kind of can rely on and obviously ball striking is fun but I think if you view that as just a skill that can be developed you know if someone who works really hard and they go man I just can't hit a forehand they have to work for a year or two to develop the technique on that it sounds like you had to work with a couple different coaches or get exposed to different people to kind of adopt that mindset but everybody has their own thing they have to improve does that sound about right
1: it does and also it's very important to know what kind of player you are and what kind of player you want to be, because uh, I've seen so many players that have, I would say, less talent, but they were working so hard, and they knew what kind of player they were. They knew that they were not going to be, you know, a Karlovic that can go in and you know, ace for pretty much a whole set. Um, so that I think now, as a coach, I also think it's very important to try to have a kind of player ID so you know this is these are my strengths these are my weaknesses this is what I have to put in some more work in uh, and in my case it was uh, I mean I was hitting forehand back serve and volley quite it was everything was quite easy but like I said go on the treadmill for an hour it was very tough for me but again like I said hard work beats talent Every single day of the week. And this is something that I try to tell my son that is 16. um, And he is maybe not um, the most talented player, but he loves his tennis and he's ready to work. And then I told him that maybe your friend here has to spend one, one and a half hour a day hitting forehands. While you have to maybe spend four hours a day hitting a forehand. So it's just that you have to be dedicated and you have to put in the time. Like I said, there are no shortcuts to become a professional tennis player or hockey player or football player or whatever you want to do or a good entrepreneur. You have to just work hard, but you also have to know how to work hard.
0: Let's talk about the 2002 Australian Open. That was your you know, lone Grand Slam championship. And I think I read online it's either your 24th or 25th Grand Slam event. So you had played a bunch of events leading up to that. What was different about those two weeks that, that led you to win that title?
1: First of all, playing slams, it is, it is different because it's the biggest events that we have on, on the tour. And also it's best of five, which again, I come back now to the physical aspect of the game. You know, pl- playing best of five is a big difference from playing best of three and then you play in australia it could be very very hot you know you can play in in us open where could, the humidity can be uh you know a nightmare so you really need to be fit uh, you know to to be able to stay for five sets that speci- that specific uh event that i managed to win was quite strange because i went in to the event with zero expectations um because i played really bad before I had done a very good preparation. I was physically extremely strong. But the events leading up to Melbourne uh, were not good. I didn't I didn't feel the ball. I didn't uh, feel my shots. Uh, I didn't think I was moving well. But everybody that has been playing grand slams knows also that the first week is a battle. It's a battle. It's that week is not the week that you're going to play your best tennis but this is the week that you have to fight and try to find your game for the second week the first match i played in melbourne was i played i remember i played a spanish guy and i didn't play well and at that time you know the courts were quite fast and to play a spanish guy at that time was a i mean a decent draw but i didn't play my best tennis but i managed to win Uh, Second round, again, I played um, an an Austrian guy uh, that preferred clay instead of hard. Uh, So it was a decent draw again. Didn't play well, but managed to win and managed to fight through those those two first rounds. And then third round, I started to feel something. And then I started to feel comfortable on the court. I started to feel my shots. I started to feel my serve. Uh, I felt that I was moving a lot better on the court. And then from, I would say, from the third round all the way to the final, I was just playing better and better and better because I got more confident and felt stronger, quicker on the court. So, um, and this, this is the key. Many journalists, uh, experts, they, they say, oh, Rafa, Novak, they play so bad, you know, in the, the first round, second round, third round. For me, I don't care as long as they go through. It's the second week where you're going to peak, that's where you you have to bring in your a game and um i managed to do that not only in in australia i managed to do it in, in a few other slams as well for the second week so um i think that's the key when you play a slam
0: so you're leading into that that major and you're not having results you're not feeling the ball which for you is very rare Why do you think you were able, you know, some people when they're not hitting well, they're not playing well, they get super discouraged and they actually fight less, right? Because they don't feel good. Why do you think you were able to dig in and fight so hard, even though that you had a lot of negative results leading into that event?
1: My coach is, it's quite a funny story. So I had, I had very bad results in the first two, um, two events leading up to Melbourne. I was very grumpy. I was very irritated. I was complaining all the time. Not only with my game, I was was complaining about everything. And then one day, this is in Sydney, my coach at that time, uh, he said, put on your uh, running shoes and now we're going to go out for a run. And I had no idea what to expect. So uh, Because I saw that he was also irritated. And then we went out, we were running, and then we went to park. I will never forget. And then he said, run until I say that you're going to stop. And then I was, I ended up, I was leaning against a tree in that park. And now I was in Sydney this, uh, sorry, uh, a couple of years ago. And I remember that park and I remember that freaking tree and I was standing, leaning against a tree, uh, throwing up completely destroyed. And then he said, now you, we have emptied, I mean, everything in that you have. Now we're going to go to Melbourne. So to be honest, I didn't have energy <laughs> to to be grumpy, and I didn't have energy to complain and I think that was for me something happened there uh and i i because I just had to recover. I mean, I was completely dead, but I was strong I mean physically, I was very strong, so it was not like we destroyed anything before Melbourne, but he just wanted to make a point and um that helped me a lot so the first two matches i was fighting i was fighting i didn't complain at all but then in the third round i started to feel my game and then from that match it was you know it was great so i think it's important to understand that you know winning when you play well is very easy but winning when you don't play well is very very difficult And this is why Novak, Rafa, Roger, and all these guys are so good because most of the people, they think that Novak plays, let's say, nine out of 10 every match. He does not. You know, he has also to fight, uh, uh, not only against the opponent, but with himself. So, like I said, winning, to win a match when you play, you know, a six out of 10 or maybe a five out of 10 is extremely difficult. But that's what the best players are doing on a day-to-day basis.
0: You beat one of my favorite players growing up in the final that year, uh, Safin. Can you just walk us through that match, kind of what your game plan was against a player like that and, and how you were able to win that, that crucial final? You know, to play Marat, which
1: is, uh, he was also, I mean, I can be honest, he was also one of my favorite guys uh, because he's such a nice guy uh, off the court, uh, we have still contact him and I, so it's, it's, it's great. Um, he was a very, very, very dangerous player. We all knew, you know, he had a great serve, very powerful uh, forehand and backhand. Court coverage could maybe, I mean, he was a big guy. So, um, for me, going into that match, it was more about, like I said, when I felt that I had, um, you know, the contact of the ball that I wanted. My backhand was my big weapon in my game. So I tried, even though uh, Marat has a hell of a backhand, I felt that I could challenge him on that side as well. So I tried in that match to put with my shots so I could dictate from my backhand side a lot. And then luckily in the final, I also felt my serve really well. So, And that specific year was very quick. So if you were serving well, you got a lot of free points. Um, but the match started quite bad because I was very tight and nervous going into that match because not only playing Marat, but to play a Grand Slam final because you don't know when you're going to play a Grand Slam final next time. And, um, you know, looking back, he was my only one that I played. So um, he broke me straight away. I was very tight. I, was, uh, I didn't move well. I didn't feel the ball. But then in the middle, I would say, middle of first set and end of first set, even though I lost the first set, I started to feel a lot better. And then my game started to come along. And from, I would say, from losing the first set, I played my best tennis in my life against Marat because it was a good final. And um, it could have, if you look at the match afterwards, I I think I'm 3-1 up in the fourth and 15-40 in his serve. So it could have maybe gone uh easier but then if you look you know in the end of the match it could have gone to five but again i'm I'm extremely proud and happy that i managed to to win my my grandson final because he was the only one that i played
0: so i i'm i already asked you before the show but i'm probably gonna get the name wrong again so you've coached a lot of great players on the men's and women's tours you're currently coaching sarana kirstea yes they say that yes <laughs> nailed it all right love it so you're working with her now not all great players make great coaches, but you've clearly kind of made that jump. Is there anything from your playing career through experience that you now try to, you know, help the players that you're working with currently?
1: Yeah, the the good thing about being a former player is that I mean, I I have made all the mistakes in the book, I promise you. I made all and I've done pretty much everything on the court as well, good and bad. And then also off the court with training and practice and and scheduling and all these things. So my duty is to try to protect my player from making the same mistakes like like I did. So uh, of course, you have a lot of experience from your playing career, but also coaching is different because sometimes you have to leave, how should I say, leave yourself out of the coaching strategy, meaning sometimes that your player ends up in matches that wakes up so many memories in in from your playing career um so that's why sometimes you have to put yourself on the side a little bit and then you have to be more objective but coaching if it's a you know if it's if it's a guy or a girl it's about communication as well you can you can deliver a message in so many different ways but i I always try to deliver even though if it's if it's uh, some criticism, I try to deliver it in a positive way, um, because I think that is is the key you know uh, traveling together, player and coach, you spend sometimes more time with the player than you do with your wife or your girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever so um I mean the player almost becomes your family it's uh, I think it's very important that you have you know, respect for each other, Uh, you know, your positions and, uh, um, you know, the players that I've I've been coaching, I try not to talk too much tennis because it's, um, I mean, of course, I talk a lot of tennis when we are on the court, maybe 30 to 45 minutes after, but that's it. Then we try to leave it and then we go back the next day. So um, because I think if you leave with your tennis 24-7, it's going to get very difficult
0: most amateurs out there you know they could improve at everything every element of their game could get better and i'm sure that that's the case for pros as well i mean nothing is perfect but when you first start working with a player you started with Serana last fall how do you go about identifying what's most important you know you might say oh the serve the forehand the backhand they all need work how do you how do you identify the most important things and then start attacking that
1: i try to listen a lot to the player first it doesn't matter who I start coaching, I ask a lot of questions. Um, and of course, in, let's say, in Sorana's case or in, in, um, in any of the other players that I've been coaching, I make my research, I look at a lot of matches. And that's one thing. But then also, you have to spend some time with them on the court. And luckily today I still hit the ball okay. So then I can, you know, I can hit with them. I can feel how their ball is, if it's heavy, if it's light, if it's spinny, you know, if it's flat, um, deep, short, um, you know, whatever. Like I said, I try to ask a lot of questions first before I go in and I give my point of view. And that I've done with all the players that I've been coaching. And I think that it, it, it's been working really well. Because you have a lot of coaches out there that says, you have to do this, you have to do that. You know, it's a, it's only this way. There is not There are not two ways or three ways of doing this. So I try to be quite humble, but at the same time, quite firm uh, what I want. Um, because I, I made this journey myself. And um, like I said, I've made all the mistakes in the book. So I know sometimes when the player wants to do something, I say, listen... I've done this; didn't go that well, uh, but feel free to try. And then we can. So again, you have to pick your fights a little bit. It's like having kids; you cannot, you know, you cannot pick the fight every single time. You have to, you know, let the player sometimes make a mistake, um, not the not the big ones, but um, the smaller ones. But I, I I think it's it's important to. Like I said, as a coach, to be quite humble and not say that this is, this is the only way and uh, you have to do this and you have to do that. No, this is what I think that you should do. Then we can discuss and we always have an open conversation all the time with the players that I've been helping.
0: Is there anything you've learned over the last few years coaching that you wish you could go back and tell yourself as a player when you were 18, 19, 20? Sometimes
1: not to be too hard on yourself, because you have, I mean, for example, looking back now, Sorana played Hadad Maya in in Dubai, and um, she was two match points, she had had two match points against her, managed to turn it around, she was 4-1 down in the third, managed to turn it around, and she won that match. And then that day is the best day this year, you know, with her tennis. So the margin, I would say, between, I'm not saying a disaster, but a bad day versus a great day could be one point. It could be a let call. It could be a a line, you know, hitting the line or whatever. So the margin sometimes between pure joy and complete freaking disaster is very, very narrow. It's very thin. This is something that I would have loved to learn as a player because I was very happy. I was very nice to myself when I won. But then when I lost, I could, you know, I could lock myself in for one day and we can maybe, maybe it was just one point here and there. So that I would have, if I would have met myself when I was 18, I would have said, listen, Look more on the match. Don't maybe look so much on the result sometimes. So, because then you can wake up next day and you can start working again. While, you know, sometimes I lock myself in for one or two days and, and I didn't practice. I just, you know, I was pretty much hitting myself. So, and, and this is not good because, um, I think that the strength with, a guy like Rafa, for example, or, or Roger is that, uh, yes, they can be disappointed and yes, they can be angry and irritated, but they bounce back very quick. Uh, and this is something that I would have loved to learn, that I left everything out there. I was fighting my ass off. Um, the guy was lucky, maybe, or he played better than me and just accept it and move on.
0: So we're going to finish up with a few Instagram questions. These are from people on Instagram directly to you. Yeah. Uh, This first person wanted to know who is the toughest opponent you ever competed against and why? Wow. I've been very lucky because I was in
1: between two, like two of the best eras of tennis, I would say. I was, you know, I played Agassi, I played Sampras, I played Becker, but at the same time I played Roger, Rafa, Andy, Novak... For me, I would say that, you know, playing Rafa on clay is um, a nightmare. I can tell you that. Playing Roger on grass is not fun at all, either. uh, Because the secret with Roger is that in a rally of, let's say, 10 shots, he gives you eight different balls, you know? It doesn't give you the same, for example, let's say, like, Agassi or Leighton, you know? It's more like... uh, I would say more machine you you get pretty much the same ball but still it comes very quick very deep very uh, you know with a lot of angle spin but with Roger it's something different so I would say rough on clay for sure um but Roger on grass is is um, I mean sometimes you feel like you need a GPS to get back to into the court you know
0: <laughs> okay. Can you elaborate a little bit? Rafa is currently my favorite player to watch. I love the mindset. Can you just describe what it's like to play him on clay? What makes that so tough? Why he's so much better than everybody else? Well, I'm like you. I love Rafa. I think I appreciate him more now
1: because now I have kids and I know, you know, how nice he is to all all the kids that are coming up to him and, you know, with autographs with photos and, and things like that. He, he, he's one of the greatest uh, tennis players ever for me. But I also love his um, his attitude uh, off the court as well. So he's definitely one of my favorite guys as well. But, you know, to play him is... The ball comes with a different spin, different heights, different heaviness every single time. And you know that when he gets hold of you with his forehand, at the best, there are three shots and you're dead. Um, sometimes only two. So, um you always feel uh, that something big is coming, you know, towards you. Sometimes when you play against other guys, the ball feels like it weighs, you know, let's say a kilo. But when you play against Rafa, it feels like the freaking ball weighs ten kilos. So it's almost like playing with, uh, you know, with a bowling ball. I think that's the key. And also his his attitude on the court is that he never lets himself down. Uh, he's always, uh, you know, very positive. He fights on every ball, so you know that you cannot beat him there either. Because you have many players that can mentally break down a little bit when it gets tough or when they don't play well, but Rafa is not one of them. He can play very bad, but he you can be damn sure that he bounces back, you know, in the end of the set or maybe next set. So I think that's that's one of the
0: things that sticks out when you play him. This person mentioned you know you won a silver medal in doubles at the Olympics. They wanted to know what the most important attribute you would be looking for in a doubles partner. Uh, good question. I tried
1: to look for a partner that can back me up on my weaknesses. Meaning, you know, when I was playing with Simon Aspelin or when I was playing with Jonas Bjorkman, for example. <clears throat> they were, I mean, amazing doubles players. But my strength as a single player, and, but especially as a double player, was my serve and my return. My weakness was my net game and also helping out my partner when he was serving, helping out my partner when he was returning. So that's why I always played my best doubles matches with doubles players. So, uh, you know, many times when I played, I mean, Jonas was one of the best players in the world in singles as well. But but when I played, when I got the opportunity to play with Jonas or or Simon or other very good doubles players is that, When I served, many times I didn't play volley because they were on top of the net. They just, you know, cleaned. And also when I was returning, many times when I was returning well, then they were all over the next ball. So I always played so well with Simon Aspelin and and Jonas Bjorkman and also a South African player, Robbie Koenig, um, that was also very good in doubles. And I also learned a lot from them. So I, I I was very honest with them. I said tell me what I'm doing wrong and I will try to, you know, help you out as much as I can. You know what you're going to get from me. You know that you're going to get someone that serves well, someone that returns well. But at the net, I'm not feeling, you know, 100% comfortable. But the more doubles I played, the, the better it got. So um um but I I always
0: played best my best doubles matches with doubles players. You've been around so many great players and great coaches over your career. What is the single best advice you've ever received? Oof. Well, I,
1: <laughs> when, I, when I played my, my Grand Slam final in Melbourne, uh, Mats, I met Mats Willander. I think it was the day before or two days before. And then he said, so how are you feeling? And I said, well, I'm a bit tight and, you know, I'm a bit nervous, but I think it's going to be fun. It's going to be fine. And then he said, you know, one thing, just remember, enjoy. He, at that time, I didn't understand what he meant because I was so focused on the match and on the mission, you know, trying to win my first slam. Now I do understand so I really think that if you, if you can enjoy your tennis more, I think, and be nicer to yourself, I really think that you, you are going to play so much better and you're going to feel so much better mentally, physically. So that's sometimes the problem with the players now. They see it more as a job than as their passion. And if you look at a guy, I'm coming back to Rafa again, I mean, and if you look at Roger as well, they're so passionate about the sport and that's why they, you know, they, they play so well and they, they, um, they win so many titles is because I think they enjoy
0: it a lot more than many others. You've given us a ton of amazing information, but if you could pick one thing to give to the adult player, who's like, say a 4-0, the amateur player, what's the best piece of advice you could give them for their tennis game? Play simple i think that many players because
1: i i've also had a you know a tennis camp for 10 years for people like you just mentioned um they are between 35 to 60 they tennis is their biggest passion in life and uh, they they would love to be a professional tennis player but now it might be a little bit too late but what i see Uh, when they play matches is that they try to play too difficult way too difficult and i promise and that's what i tell my son as well when he plays is that play every single shot cross court cross court cross court if you run around your forehand go inside out don't go inside in go inside out and i promise you that that will bring you very far in your uh i mean let's say if you are 40 plus and you love your tennis and uh i see like i said also sometimes they they have their service games and they make two three double faults and i said no 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 no. play simple play simple don't try to hit the first serve 400 kilometers an hour and then risk making a double fault you know try to find your rhythm Try to put the first serve in first. And then when you start feeling it, then you can accelerate. So my tip to them is play simple. Play very simple. And, and warm up before the tennis. Because that's the thing that I see many times. They go from their office and they go like, ah, ah, and then, okay, I'm ready. We all know that we are getting older and injuries are coming. So
0: warm up, have fun, play simple. Amazing advice. Thomas, it was a pleasure meeting you. Likewise. I I grew up watching you play, and I've learned a bunch as a coach, and and hopefully, people out there did as well. So, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much. All right. I want to thank Thomas for coming on the show today. It's funny, he had almost the exact same answer that Lindsey Davenport had a few episodes ago about being kinder to yourself as a younger player and how one point could be the difference between pure joy and complete disaster. His advice to just analyze the performance was great, and I loved his story leading up to the Australian Open. Things weren't going well, he wasn't getting good results, and he just fought and fought and fought until his game turned around. So next time you're struggling, keep fighting hard and realize that good tennis could be right around the corner. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram at Stokey Tennis for clips from these podcasts, as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved at tennis without even hitting a ball.